0: Welcome to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly in Southeast Spain. We are here for the purpose of worshiping God and reaching others with love. We pray that as you listen, you will be inspired and challenged in your walk with God. Again, good morning to everyone. I have been, as they say, biting at the bit to get up here and uh, finish off This uh, passage of uh, Isaiah, uh, not because I want to finish it. I think you guys are ready for me to move on to something else. I get it. But man, I have just been so amazed by this passage. And, uh, And realizing that not only did I not know it, but no one's really pointed out half the things that I found You know, uh, other than commentators. I guess that's why we read the commentators. I guess they they, they took the time to study the things, right? Anyway. So I wanted to finish it today. I had at least a whole other page. This morning I got up and I said, "I, I think I better cut some off. You miss out because there was a lot of stuff that I cut out that really was worth saying. But nonetheless, we'll still try to get out of here before 1.30. I got to finish today. So give me the liberty to expand a little bit and let me pray. Father, there are portions of scripture that just speak to us in a broader, deeper, more sensitive way. Though all of your word is inspired and useful for the teaching, for the reproof, for the instruction in righteousness, there are portions, Lord, that just go deeper into our soul so has it been, Father, the trip that we have taken through Isaiah 53. And we just ask, Father, that uh, as we conclude today, that uh, our hearts and minds would not say goodbye, uh, but merely realize the need to even understand it more. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> One of the things that was misunderstood by the Hebrews, by the Jews, was that Messiah was to suffer and die. Then he would rise and reign. They focused on the reigning part, overlooking the scriptures that spoke of his suffering. Let me quote to you Luke chapter 24 verse 46. Um, Jesus is speaking. He says, thus he said to them, it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. He said, guys, this has always been the plan. This has always been the plan. So you cannot understand the person and the work of Jesus Christ apart from those two categories, suffering and glory. Now, because I know you guys remember really well all the things we've said in this almost, I think this is the 11th week that we've been on Isaiah. And you remember the first thing I said 11 weeks ago, because I know you guys have great memory. Let me answer a question that I left out in the open. And the question was, What is the most important question that any human being will ever ask and need to have answered? I think it isn't hard to understand that wherever man has been, whatever culture, whatever time, space, continuum you wish to look back at or forward to, religion has always had a place because man knows. He didn't get here by chance. He knows it. He knows there is someone, something, somewhere out there greater than he is. And so the question is, how can a sinner be made right with God so as to escape condemnation and enter heaven? We ask that question we said that that being the most important question is the reason why the Bible was written to answer that question. And very specifically, Isaiah 53. Now we, we mentioned that many, lots of the commentators call Isaiah the fifth gospel, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Isaiah being the fifth. Well, if you're much into time and and uh, you know calendar, you could say, well, that's kind of wrong, isn't it? Wouldn't you think that's wrong? Who wrote first? Isaiah. So uh, came upon one particular commentator that said, why do we call it the fifth gospel? It's the first gospel. It was the first gospel. It is an account of God, the God-man, who came into the world to die for sinners, who rose again to provide salvation, and has been exalted to heaven. You don't have to go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to find that. Isaiah explains it with great, great clarity. So in Isaiah 53, the prophet uh, uh, writes to us and gives us a vision of the future salvation at the end of human history, after Armageddon, after the tribulation, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, when they, the Jews, will see him and believe. Scripture says they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And they see him for who He really is, and they embrace him as Lord and Savior. We have been looking on Thursdays through an allegorical narrative that is known as the sheep and goats, and we've been filling in the gaps, historical, of eschatology, trying to understand what is going to happen at the end, and there's so much and uh, we've been trying to fill some of those little gaps. Here, God, in this passage, we find the confession of Israel at a given time in history after Jesus appears. So now we come to our final observation in this passage. And our final observation is from the viewpoint of God. Up to now, from verse 1 through verse 10 into the first line of verse 11, Israel has been speaking. They are the ones narrating. But when we come to the last two verses, verses uh, um, 11 and 12, we get it from God's viewpoint. After all, God's the one whose perspective we really want, is it not? What is God's perspective on all of this? What is God's perspective on His Christ, His Ebed, his slave? In Isaiah 53, excuse me, Isaiah 52:13, he said this: Yahweh speaking, said, "Behold my servant." Now that started. The passage back in 52, 13, 14, and 15. Behold, my slave. And when we come back to 53, verse 11, God comes back in. Now he's speaking again. And he says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant. And at that point, we realize God is going to put the closing thoughts on an awesome chapter in Isaiah. So we come to our first point quickly. Number one, God speaks. God speaks. Starting in the middle of verse 11, everything changes. Pronouns change. Verbs change. Everything changes focus from, from the future past To God looking only at the cross. By his knowledge, verse 11 says. Can we have verse 11? By his knowledge. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Yahweh is predicting in the last two phrases the death of the righteous one. He is predicting that he will pour himself out to death, a single bearing death that will bear the sins of many and that by that, the servant will justify the many. We'll come back to the many. We've touched the many before, but we got to finish that off. This is what we call the doctrine of vicarious substitutionary atonement. Very confusing, very very big words that says basically he died in your place he died what you should die he tasted the hell that we should taste but he did it for us in our place justified the many So God affirms a few things in this passage that are just theologically are just incredible. For one, he affirms the deity of the servant. He calls him the holy one, the righteous one. Well, there's only one that is righteous and holy. In verse 11, he affirms his humanity in that he says he's going to die. He's going to be poured out himself to death. He's going to be included among the transgressors. See, he refers to his vicarious, substitutionary, sacrificial atonement. He says that he is the guilt offering, he will bear their iniquities. In verse 12, he affirms the resurrection because he has him die. And then he says, he will allot him a portion with the great and divide the spoils with the strong. Well, how does he do that if he's already dead? It assumes the resurrection. It just... Points out it doesn't stay that way. He doesn't stay there. And it affirms the mediative work of Jesus. It affirms the fact that He is in heaven right now, mediating for you and me. When He says to intercede, to intercede. So, this is a word from God to us directly. He is quoting, He is speaking. Isaiah is quoting Him. And he is giving us the answer to the question of what is the most important question. The answer that God gives us is that the death and resurrection of the righteous one is the only means and ways by which we can make peace with God. Number two, the righteous one the righteous one. Again, he brings this statement, the righteous one. There is only one who could bear the title. There's only one in the world, one human, one man who can be the righteous one. It is a messianic title familiar in the New Testament because it was taught in the Old Testament. Let me remind you about Peter when he gives his sermon there in Acts chapter 3. This is what he says, but you, speaking to the Jews, you disowned the holy and the righteous one. He knew who it was. He figured it out. Stephen, the martyr, that first martyr that was stoned, uh, lapidated because he was preaching at the temple... Uh, This is uh, what uh, he said when he was speaking to them, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. There it is again, the righteous one. The apostle Paul, when he was uh, uh, giving his testimony in Jerusalem, uh, which was after he was arrested and was about to be taken to Rome. He's given his testimony and he quotes Ananias, the man that came and freed him from his blindness, you might remember. And this is what he said, Ananias said to him. He said, uh, who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Ananias said, "You have, you, God saved you, Saul, to announce the coming of the righteous one. That was a title. They knew. They always knew. They just didn't want to believe. Number three, we come to our third point the predetermined plan. I need you to put on your thinking caps for this one. This is, this is a little deeper than usual, but I got to get this out so that you understand it. there is a phrase in verse 11. If we can just have verse 11, because it says, by his knowledge, that's how it begins. By his knowledge. So so here is God speaking of his son, of the slave, of the righteous one. And he says, by his knowledge, he will justify the many. Now the many, meaning those who believe. The many, meaning the people of God. The many... Meaning, those whose sins he died and atoned for, he will justify. He will provide righteousness for the many. And this begs an obvious question, folks. Are you in the many? Are you in the many? I wasn't in the many. Well, at least I didn't know about it. Till the day I understood that Christ died for me. And then I understood I'm in the many. I'm numbered among the many. So, I know you probably don't, Stop to think about this word, knowledge. It says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Well, that's a problem. Because theologically, you got to stop and say, what do you mean by by his knowledge? Um, Let me break it down for you. Very simply. It could be, when it says by his knowledge, it could be referring to the knowledge of God's plan. Like the Messiah knew the knowledge of God's plan. Could be that. Um, It could be that he knew the understanding of God's plan, the perfect wisdom that he possessed. But that doesn't explain the rest of the passage because it's by the knowledge that he redeems and makes righteous. So I'm going to put up a verse. It's called 1 Peter 1, 2. And at this point, really pay attention. In 1 Peter 1, 2, it says this. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. What it's saying is, You were saved according to the foreknowledge of God. You become part of the many through the foreknowledge of God. Now you want to know a word that drives everybody crazy? That word. What does that mean? Foreknowledge. And so we try to interpret that in our own English understanding. And we conclude that foreknowledge is foresight. You know what foresight is? You know, foreknowledge, this was explained to me this way. God looks down the corridor of life, right? And at one point he came to May 8th, 1980, uh, somewhere about 40, 45 in the afternoon. And he saw that Raphael said, yes, yes, God, I'll repent. And he said, oh, I'll choose him. There is a really big theological problem with that. I told God what to do. And that's how they define foreknowledge. As foresight. Uh, They define it as information gained by observation. God observed, saw what was going to happen, and then he chose. Well, then that's not God choosing. That's me telling God who to choose. But the problem is we're trying to define it from English or Spanish or whatever language. But if we come to it from the original, we find it's something different. But before we do that, even if I never explain this to you, all the depth of it, let me show you verse 20. 1 Peter 1.20. Now, I'm going to keep to the uh, idea of foresight. Okay. So foresight is God looks down the corridor. He sees what's going to happen. And he's like, I'll pick him, 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 and him. Her, 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 her. And a lot of people are really okay with that. Well, what are you going to do with this verse? Same word. Don't give me that. Oh, well, that's a different Greek word. No, same word. Matter of fact, it's the only two times the word is ever used. Only two times. Verse two, verse 20. And here's what it says about Jesus, talking about Jesus, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Oh, do you know what that means? That God looked down the corridor of life and he saw what Jesus was going to do and accomplish. and He says, I'll pick him. Really? Does that make sense to you? Not when you bring it to verse 20, it doesn't, right? It's got to mean something else. So you got to dig a little deeper. There's one of the Greek lexicons, says foreknowledge means prearrangement. Prearrangement. Foreknowledge is linking to the pre- predetermined plan. God has a plan. It's a predetermined plan. And foreknowledge is the deliberate choice of God because of his perfect knowledge. It is a predetermined relationship in the knowledge of God. It is knowing, not in the sense of observation, it is knowing in the sense of bringing it to reality. So it is not foresight, which is information gained out of observation. It is God simply predetermining something to happen in his perfect knowledge. Now that you're lost, just go back to 1 Peter 1.20 and say, whatever it is, and I didn't understand, Pastor, it can't be that God decided, oh, he did a good job, so I'll pick him. Because that would be the same word that's used about Jesus. But if you think predetermined plan before the foundation of the world, you go, oh, no, that, that's a better interpretation of that word. Now... Again, there's still a problem. You say, oh, stop with the problems. Well, I got to tell you about the problem because back at verse 11, it says that by his knowledge, he will justify many. And then we would say, well, he doesn't justify me by his knowledge. He justifies me through his death, right? Through the sacrifice on the cross. So you say, what do we do with that? Well, Perhaps one of the most um, premier, well-known, most respected uh, commentaries of Hebrew is uh, one by two gentlemen, and they're called Kyle and Dalich. It's called the Kyle and Dalitch Commentary. It's all in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew words of all of that, and a very respected commentary. And they, along with others, conclude that this could be interpreted different because, listen, by his knowledge, that would be the knowledge of the Messiah, But they say it can be um, interpreted by the knowledge of him. In other words, by our knowledge of the Messiah. Which, that makes sense too, right? Our knowledge of the righteous one will make us righteous. Knowing him is what makes us righteous. So it can be interpreted our knowledge of him of his person, of his work, of his provision, of the death, of the resurrection. Because you know him, you can be justified. So, whether it is God's knowing the predetermined relationship that he will have with you, or whether it is you knowing him, either case, God validates one great truth. When I realized this, I said, I got my message for the next time. And here is the truth. God validates the great commission. You know that you will be my witnesses? He said that to the Jews in this book of Isaiah in uh, chapter 43, verse 10. You will be my witnesses. And he tells them right here, Why? he validates the Great Commission. God says that he will justify the many. Scripture says, neither is there salvation in any other name. Can't look for salvation anywhere else. No man, Jesus said, can come to the Father but by me. Let me remind you what it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 15, because this is Paul writing about the Jews in Romans chapter 10 when he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? But then he goes on and says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they they, to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then he closes with this phrase. How beautiful are the feet of them who preach the gospel of peace. This is Isaiah 53. God saying that they must know him. And that he is the knower of all men. So. Whether it is you knowing him, or he predeterminedly knowing you, he is telling us to take the gospel to every creature. From the beginning, they were to take the gospel, the news of Jehovah, of Yahweh, to every creature. That was their biggest mistake. They kept it in the family. They didn't do a lot of preaching. I'm wondering if we as a church today in the 21st century are repeating the same mistakes. We're just happy being us. We cannot be happy being us. You have to wake up every morning thinking there are people that are eternally lost and I must share the gospel. I must tell them about the Savior. That was the message of Isaiah 53. Verse 11, it says, My servant makes many to be accounted righteous. My servant, the mystery continues. Because the Spirit of God penned these words. The servant makes many. Because he was the guilt offering put to grief. Because he was crushed. It is because of the accepted sacrifice that the servant can make many righteous. But it's our job. To get him to be known. Because if we don't go, if we don't preach, they'll never hear. This isn't by osmosis. Number four. Well, hold on. There's a little phrase there at the bottom of verse 11. He shall bear their iniquities. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about that. If you want to know about that, you got to go look for the message, the servant substitute. Because we've extensively explained that in verses 4 and 5. When we said that the Messiah takes on the full burden of sinners, the guilt, the full effect of sin... He places them upon himself, pays in full penalty for those sins, and thus carries them away. And we said that's called penal substitution. Meaning, not only is he a substitute, but he is penalized. He is punished for you and for me. All right, number four. Jehovah, Yahweh, has more to say in this passage, The second half of verse 12, it says, he poured out himself to death. God is speaking, and don't forget that. God is speaking about his servant, the righteous one. He said he poured himself out to death. That is a willing verb. He poured out himself. He allowed himself to be oppressed. He allowed himself to be afflicted. We learned that in verse 7. Literally, this idea here about pouring himself out, literally it means he handed his soul over to death. Now that should bring your mind and your memory to a place in time at the cross where Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And then it says, and having said this, He breathed his last. Nobody took his life. Nobody killed him. He gave it up willingly as a penal substitute, as a punishment for you, for me. That is incredible, folks. Do you grasp the depth of that? When it says these things. Then there are these two wonderful statements to follow. the, The first one is, and he was numbered with the transgressors. God. Do you understand that? God was numbered with the transgressors. That's blasphemy. God numbered among us? That's why he's God. He doesn't have to be among us. He doesn't have to be like us. He doesn't have to smell us and rub up against us. You know, he doesn't have to catch our colds and deal with our shenanigans. Because he's God. But that's what it says there. He was numbered among the transgressors. He himself included himself among us. In fact, Jesus quotes this passage right here. Jesus, in Luke chapter 22, verse 37, this is what Jesus says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. What scripture? Get ready. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He quoted it. He said, I was... Preordained to be here, to feel hunger like you feel hunger, to feel pain like you feel pain, to feel the weight of um, life like you do, to feel the weight of temptation, and to show you you can say no. It's just—it's amazing. Just amazing. He was literally embedded among the transgressors. Transgressors. He lived among the transgressors. He mingled with them in the world. He hung between two of them as a another one. And there's another phrase, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. He you said, know, "What do you mean you mingled among us, and it didn't disgust you?" Once in a while, I'll be with someone, and they'll say, "Did you? you? Did you see so and so?" And I, and yeah, yeah. <sighs> Next time, would you please tell them to take a shower? They smelled. Imagine God rubbing up next to you and saying it's not that he smells it's not that she smells it's that they reek of sin. Oh, I would thought of it that way. But he says that he makes intercession for the transgressors. It means to mediate, to go between, and to stand between us and God. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, where it says, There is one mediator between God and man, man, Christ Jesus. The verb intercede means an, imper, it's an imperfect verb, which means that it is continuous. He never stops interceding. And that's what the Bible says in Hebrews 7.25. It says, he always lives to make intercession for them. Thank you, Lord, because I need you to intercede for me all the time. I don't disgust him. He loves me. Enough to die for me and then stand between me and God forever until I get out of this sinful place. Wow. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, Who, Jesus being at the right hand of God, interceding for us. There he is, at the hand of power. Taking your place and speaking up for you when you mess up. Saying to God the Father, listen, don't, don't take it personal what Raphael just did or said. Please forgive him. He, he's ours. He's a righteous one too. He, he's part of the many. I died for him. So let's not count his stupidity against him. Thank you, Lord. I need that. I need that a lot. And finally, the last point, his resurrection. And you thought we'd be here till 1.30. Hmm. Well, I forgot to tell you the last point's two pages, but that's all right. Hang with me. Just hang with me. Just relax, relax. Verse 12. I left this section apart. It, it's, in the, it's at the beginning of verse 12, but I left it for the last because now you're going to understand this section even better. Some of the translations do no righteousness to this, do no justice. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Remember that word, many? We've been throwing that around a lot, right? Well, in some of your translations, it says, um, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. It's the same word for many. It's the same repeated word throughout the other verses for many. Why did they put great? Well, someone, I like what one of the commentators said, because the many become great. So he recognized that the word was really the many. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. This implies resurrection. Because he's now going to be rewarded. Rewarded. Jesus is going to be rewarded because of what he did. Because the sacrifice was accepted. So he is rewarded. And after the suffering, the satisfaction of reward. After the sorrow, salvation. After death, deliverance. After the slaughter, the glory. After the pain, the pleasure. After the thorns, the throne. After the cross, comes the crown. That the Son of God would die, be buried, and rise again. Jesus knew that. And he said, and you know that. You should have known that. It's all over the Old Testament. So the text ends in the second coming. I don't know if you realize that. The text ends... Where it began in 52 verse 13. He will prosper and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He will startle nations. He will silence kings. It began with the second coming. It ends with the second coming. The text ends with the triumphant reward and victory parade that only he and he alone deserves. The Lord God himself sets his servant on the throne and rewards him with all the spoils of his conquering and his triumph. I I trust somewhere someone has explained to you what the triumph is in Corinthians. Because that's a very important aspect of his return. He says that he will be sharing with the many, he will be sharing the spoils with the strong. Who are the strong? Scripture says the weak are made strong. The many. It's still talking about the same group. Us. We're the many. We're the strong because he has made us righteous. And you know what? It's about sharing. It's all about God sharing. With us, what is his. Now it does it makes all the sense in the world that Jesus gets it all, right? You know, he gets everything, he's the conqueror, he receives all the eternal glories, he reserves all the riches, he he deserves them, he gets them. You know what isn't normal, he shares them with us. He's gonna share them with us, even in that, he's not selfish. Even in that, Revelation 11 tells us that this kingdom, this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his son. This all becomes his and he shares it with us. Revelation 19 reminds us that he's going to come from glory with all of his saints, with all of his angels. Heaven will be empty and he will share in the riches and the conquering with us. Scripture says we will reign with him. Some of you are going to make terrible, terrible reigners because you're, you take advantage of your positions here on earth. That's okay. In heaven you'll do it right. That's Okay. I'll I'll get a second chance at it in heaven. That'll be good. That'll be good. So God declares two things about the Messiah. He will divide the portion with the many, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, and those two are us. The emphasis here is about sharing. That's awesome. It's all about sharing with the many, The many that have been justified. Verse 12 says, he bore the sin of many. And with those many whom he makes strong, he will share all of his riches. I can't wait to get there, folks. It gives me a whole different concept of what in the world am I doing saving on this earth for? Let me send it ahead where moth and rot and rust don't corrupt and where thieves in Wall Street don't steal. <laughs> We're gonna become heirs with God. Romans eight seventeen says that joint heirs with Christ. Everything he possesses we will possess. Is not this the greatest generosity of grace you can even begin to imagine? It's if that doesn't excite you, you still haven't figured out what's waiting on the other side. The treasures of eternity God shares with me. Why do I want to waste my time with this? This makes no sense. It makes no sense in my head at least. 2 Corinthians tells me in chapter 2 verse 14 that we are going to march in the triumph. Do you know what a triumph is? is the celebration of a Roman general when he has had a tremendous victory and he brings all the spoils from the land and Rome, the city of Rome, would welcome them and people would line up the streets and there would be this great parade and the the general would walk in front and all of his hosts behind him and all the slaves behind him and all the gold behind him and everything that he found and conquered behind him. I'm going to be in his triumph. Probably the last row, but I'm going to be there. I don't care where I am as long as I'm there. That's what it says. It's going to share on everything. Wow. It just, it just amazes me. So the promise of Israel is the future generation will repent. They will confess. That's this passage. That's great. Pray for Israel. It's what the Bible tells us to do. Love Israel. Pray for Israel. They'll come. At one point, at a very sad moment in time in history, after many have died, two thirds of them, the one third, they're going to repent and they're going to bow. They're going to believe. Because they're going to see him whom they pierced. And they're going to weep as one weeps for an only child. But they'll get it. And the circle will be finished. And the millennium will begin. And for a thousand years, you won't pay taxes. How about that? God will reign from Jerusalem. This confession must be your confession, not just that of Israel. To repent for your sins, to know what Christ has done, to embrace him by faith as a substitute who took your place, to confess him as the risen Lord so you can be sure to be saved. Whoever calls on the name will be saved and escape eternal damnation. This, folks, is the only question that has ever needed an answer. And the only question that will settle your forever. You get this lifetime to get it right. That's it. You get this lifetime to get it right. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Bow with me and thank God for His wonderful word. We look into it, Lord, and we are amazed. We're amazed for so many reasons. We're amazed at the fact that you wrote this 700 years before it ever took place and you mentioned every detail necessary for our redemption. You wrote it, Father, through your spirit and your servant almost 700 years before. here to prove to us that this is inspired of you. And in it, Father, you mentioned every aspect of your servant, every aspect of Jesus, everything, Father, that would be accomplished on that cross. Before the cross even came, Lord, you, you tell us what's accomplished in eternity, beginning with your knowledge, ending, ending, with our march of triumph alongside of you. All because one day, one day, you chose to love us and we chose to respond. All because you took on the form of a man, humbled yourself as a man, and came Embedded yourself among men to die the death of a man. Only to be raised again and to be glorified and to be exalted to the highest place. And so, Father, we say, Lord, you are Lord. Be you the Lord of our lives. Thank you for your word, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Ministry of the International Christian Assembly, a ministry of AMG Spain and AMG International. For more information, please visit our website at www.icatorrevieja.org. This audio file is not copyrighted.